0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So, whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1 dot com. That's uh1 dot com.
2: Yo, technology. What is it all about?
3: Uh, I think that even though he said. Lovely things about Cheryl as she announced her departure, his own post about it, I saw as somewhat of an implicit rebuke because he said, this is an end of an era. But now here's how I'm continuing this reorganization of the company to make sure that no one else has that power again.
2: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, and this week we have a double header for you because, well, why not? I want to bring you the best, most relevant stuff, and that's what I'm trying to do this week with two guests. So first up, we have Stephen Levy, who may very well be the best person on the planet, other than Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, to talk about Meta slash Facebook, and specifically Sandberg's resignation this month after 14 years as the COO and right hand woman to Mark Zuckerberg, what it all means, etc. So just to give you some some context, Stephen is editor-at-large for Wired. He's also the author of Facebook, The Inside Story, which is really the definitive account of Facebook, from going back from to its founding all the way through its post-election fall into scandal, controversy, etc. Steven's a veteran of the valley. He's actually was on the pod uh, a couple years ago to talk about the book that he wrote. It came out in 2020, and he spent hours and hours with Zuckerberg as well as Sandberg, countless other folks inside the organization, outside the organization. He knows this company, the key players, extremely well. So he has a very unique informed perspective about just kind of the breakdown really of one of the most lucrative and powerful partnerships in the history of business and of course I'm talking about Zuck and Sandberg so I wanted to have him on just to kind of give you all a sense of you know the kind of the genesis of that partnership where it started to break down what it means now for Meta as it kind of goes forward into the Metaverse and beyond and what it all means for the rest of us so he is up first And then we have a great catch-up with Chris Sheldrick of What3Words. And Chris first came on the pod four years ago. This month, actually. Almost exactly four four years ago, which is insane. And if you don't remember, What3Words is just a really fascinating company. They divided the world into three-meter squares. 57 trillion of them. And then signed each square a random three-word label... And in so doing, or attempting to completely remake mapping and addressing and addresses by making it much more precise so I can say, you know, my front door, for example, is woven head keen. and that's my front door, but if I wanted to have something delivered to, say, my garage, I could give them a different three-letter word. You get the idea. Anyhow, this past week, uh, What3Words just announced a deal with Jaguar Land Rover. So its system is now integrated into the in-car navigation system. Deals the 17th that What3Words has done with a major car company. And what's really great is that when Chris first came on the show four years ago, it was pretty early in its journey. And he was talking about doing these deals, but, you know, he still had to deliver and really sign up, the big car companies, the big delivery giants, etc. So four years on, it's just it's gaining momentum and it's fun to kind of go back and kind of check in with guests. And I know a lot of listeners like to hear you know, how people are getting on after they've been on the show. So that's what we do this week with Chris. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I'll put a link to the original interview from four years ago in the show notes if you want to go back to see what Chris was saying back then and then where they've got to now that'll be there for you so but right now we're going to get to our first guest who is Stephen Levy to talk about the changes inside the executive suite really the palace intrigue at one of the world's most powerful and controversial companies and what it all means so here he is Stephen Levy editor at large at Wired and the author of Facebook the inside story enjoy Well, thank you for, for making the time. It's been many moons since um, since we last spoke. I think you might have been one of the last in person pre pandemic podcasts that I did. I think is that timing work work out no, right? I
3: was talking about the Facebook, you know, the book then, so that could have
2: been. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have you back on because obviously Sheryl Sandberg has left meta as it is now and i couldn't think of anyone else i'd rather speak to about this just to give kind of i think what this means you know why this has happened and also what she meant to the company and kind of that whole arc right of going right back to facebook or the facebook as it was called back in the early days but i was wondering if you could just give a sense of what you wrote about last week you know quote unquote the deal between she and Mark Zuckerberg, and kind of how that came together, and you know how that worked and why that worked for for Facebook as it grew.
3: Sure. So when Cheryl came to Facebook in 2008, she had uh, a number of different agreements with Mark Zuckerberg, the then 23 year old CEO, who she was going to work with as an experienced 38 year old Silicon Valley veteran who knew how to scale a big organization. And a couple of them were very formal agreements, like we're going to meet at least once a week. We're going to take feedback from each other and, you know, things like that. But then there was this arrangement they made where how they would split their responsibilities. So basically, Mark Zuckerberg took the products the things he was really interested in. And that would be under his side of the company. And Cheryl had essentially everything else. The things that Mark wasn't interested in clients in terms of advertising policy, the Washington operation, human resources, they called people services, that was going to be Cheryl's world. And she would operate it fairly autonomously uh, while Mark was in charge of the products.
2: If you could just give people a flavor of what Facebook was when she arrived, because I think that's also interesting now because I think if you think about Meta today, you know this behemoth used by 3 billion people, and I know the shares have come off dramatically, but it's still worth $500 billion. It's this hugely influential thing, but it was very different when she arrived.
3: Yeah, uh, they didn't have a really great business model, certainly not to one that would be able to support the fantastic growth that they had and monetize it effectively uh, the way Google had with its audience. You know, that was really the model that was no accident that Mark decided to hire Cheryl because she had helped scale their advertising model and it was wildly successful and hugely profitable. They had a product which was like minting money which was a, their search ads called AdWords And Cheryl was in charge of that organization. And she wanted to build something similar for Facebook, uh, something where advertisers would get some things that they couldn't get in traditional media, uh, maybe not even with Google. So that was important to build the business side. Another important thing was that Mark wanted to use Cheryl to build a culture that scaled. Facebook came out of literally Mark's dorm room and it had a lot of elements of a dorm room to it. Uh, there were a lot of bros <laughs> and they swaggered around and they thought it was cool to crash the system. And Cheryl wanted to make it into a, a very sophisticated 21st century company of size. And uh, and she was largely successful in doing that.
2: So it was, it was a bit Cro-Magnon back in the days in terms yeah. of just... And
3: she'd have none of it. She And then she started organizing the women in Facebook. She brought in literally Gloria Steinem to talk to the women at Facebook. Um, And (laughs) in the the process, she built her own brand Mm. as a person who was a national, maybe even an international figure representing women in the workplace. And that culminated in her coming out with this book, Lean In, which made her uh, a very public figure in her own right.
2: And what was your sense of their relationship? Um, because, you know, it was really interesting when they announced the, the departure, her departure last week. You know, it was she had this big post. It was very saccharine. And then there was, you know, there was an internal kind of town hall that was published, I think, by Vox that showed kind of them going back and forth and just like praising each other endlessly how much of that is real or how you know what was the nature of their relationship because what i think is really interesting is you know him saying basically i'm gonna do product you do the rest of it and then off they went to build this giant thing i mean by many measures it was one of the most lucrative business partnerships ever obviously it had its issues as well but just wondering the kind of the nature of their relationship especially as things kind of got bigger and changed
3: well, the nature of the arrangement by which they split the company failed, and it failed right. because you can't separate a company like that, particularly Facebook, uh, where Mark was in charge of the products. So the people who built the newsfeed reported up to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and when people ran into problems with the newsfeed, those problems lived in Cheryl's organization. All the people who did the content management were part of Cheryl's world, and when problems came up, she wanted to handle them on their own, and it took a long time before they went back to Mark, and at one point, the chief security officer who reported not to Mark but to Cheryl, not even directly, the general counsel reported to Cheryl, and the chief security officer reported to uh, the general counsel.
2: This is Alex Stamos. Yeah,
3: exactly. And he had some big problems, and he found the only way that he could get action on them was to bypass his two bosses and send them to people in Mark Zuckerberg's organization, mm. the people like Chris Cox, the head of product and mark himself and he said what the heck's going on here and this is after the election when they noticed that there's all this disinformation going on and some of it wound up coming from the russians and that's what's really
2: interesting is was there a break was there a clear kind of uh breach of when it was very clear like oh this deal no longer works because it, there was a time uh, and it feels like an eon ago Where people were generally positive about Facebook. It was new. It was cool. You know, Obama loved it. It helped get him elected. And everybody was like, oh, this is a wonderful thing. My grandparents get to see my grandkids. All that kind of stuff. But it does feel like at a certain point, you know, the worm turned. Everybody would realize like, oh, my goodness. This thing, you know, has a lot of very, very deep systemic problems. And just thinking about that in the context of that this again this power arrangement at the top was there a moment when it was clear that like okay this is actually part of the problem this does not work
3: you know there's like a, a saying about how a company goes bankrupt and saying it's first it's gradually then all at once right and i think the facebook's troubles happened gradually there was one problem after another but the company just got by it so many people used it they found use for it Um, The financials were great, but, you know, the FTC cited it for bad dealings in privacy. A lot of people had difficulty with stuff they saw on their news feeds. There was disinformation around the world that was reported to it. They ignored that. And then all at once happened with the 2016 election when all of a sudden people realized, wait a minute, you know, the troubles with Facebook led to perhaps Donald Trump's election. And it undercovered a lot of the problems there. And Cambridge Analytica came, which underlined even more. The privacy problems were worse than people thought. And again, this came from Sheryl's world. I think it did have a somewhat of a rift between Mark and Cheryl there. I remember in the last interview I did with Mark for my book, it was 2019, right before July 4th holiday. And I was at his house and I asked him... Point blank, and we had done like nine interviews by then, and you know, uh, and I had pretty much was able to ask him anything without him stomping out of the room. Yeah, and I said, "Mark, do you think that Cheryl lets you down?" And there was a long pause. Oh wow, a long pause, and finally he gave some non-committal answer, not saying no, but not saying yes, and that sort of squares with what we know. But they always kept meeting. He didn't fire Cheryl, although there have been reports saying at one point she wondered she worried that she might get fired. She didn't leave. Uh the time wasn't right. She didn't want to leave with her reputation tarnished. But it became mm. clear that as long as she was at Facebook or Meta, as it changed its name, she would not rehabilitate her reputation. So this split was inevitable. Um and it's not surprising also that they cooted each other on her way out the door because she did a lot for the company and Mark recognizes that. And he's certainly not going to air whatever dirty laundry might be between them out in public.
2: In that, that question you asked about, you know, whether she let you down, in what context were you talking about there? Because I'm thinking back to 2019.
3: Exactly that arrangement that I was talking about. We had, I asked them mm. some very specific questions about that arrangement. And was that a mistake? And his response was kind of interesting, was that, well, maybe it didn't work out too well. This is These are my words. Um, yeah. But I had to do it because I didn't have the experience to run all facets of a giant company like this. He said, you know, I started the company when I was 19. I was only 23 then. This is all I could do I to do the process right. right? And hand the rest over to her. So to me, it sounded like he was saying, look, yeah, we ran into problems because of that, but in retrospect, I couldn't have done anything else. The thing that always
2: fascinates me about Meta is that it is a dictatorship at the end of the day. I mean, Zuckerberg has controlling shares. He can't be removed. You know, the, the buck does stop with him. And for all of the discussion of, you know, we want to kind of get this right. We're spending more than anyone on content moderation. They have this huge army of tens of thousands of content moderators. It does feel like ultimately if his kind of North star has been growth. Totally. Above all else. And it's kind of like, you know, that power sharing arrangement is like, okay, I make the product which creates all the problems and then you have to clean it up. And this is not clean upable. Is that fair?
3: Well, it was, you know, something that, that Cheryl took on. And he came to realize that you couldn't outsource, you know, well, not outsource, but you couldn't delegate that part of the company, the the, the the content moderation, the policy to someone else, even the security at one point. Uh, and I think that even though he said lovely things about Cheryl as she announced her departure, his own post about it, I saw as somewhat of an implicit rebuke uh, because Mm. he said, this is an end of an era. And he said, you know, Cheryl was so great. She did this for this. She did that for us. But now here's how I'm continuing this reorganization of the company, which he began, you know, a little over a year ago, to make sure that no one else has that power again, that I'm really going to be more in charge of it. So he announced that the next Chief Operating Officer, which was Cheryl's formal title, is going to have nothing like the power she had. and I'm going to move things around so you know he won't be in charge of these things. Earlier, he had taken away some of Sheryl's biggest responsibilities in terms of policy and communications. He had been in charge of the PR organization and gave them to Nick Clegg, who previously was reporting in Sheryl's organization, policy and communications. She, he was like almost like an equal to her in the organization. He reported directly to Mark. The head of people relations, HR, now reports to Mark. The diversity head, the chief Mm. diversity officer, before that was like one of Cheryl's most important initiatives, diversity. Nope, not not in the chief operating officer chain of command anymore. Uh, She reports to the head of people who reports to Mark. So he basically dismantled everything about that arrangement to make sure Mm. that there wasn't a part of the company that problems would not funnel up to him. So the question
2: is then for me is like, I was pleased last week when we were writing a piece about this along with every other journalist in the Western world was, you know, I was talking to some wall street analysts and they're like, you know, one of them said, you know, we slept well at night knowing that Cheryl was in the co-pilot seat that she was this, She was such a savvy, good operator that, you know, and also acted as almost like a check uh, in ways on Mark Zuckerberg like no one else could. I'm wondering, do you think that's true? And what is that when we look forward, you know, this like huge company used by three, you know, a third of the human population now run effectively by one person or more by one person than it was before is that worrying do you think there are some impulses that mark zuckerberg that will now be kind of unbridled that we should be more worried than we were you know a week ago
3: i think anyone who's been paying attention would say that it's been quite a while since cheryl held that authority over mark Mm. that she would be the person to rein him in there's other people who were close to him that might say well mark maybe this isn't a good idea Ultimately, he'll make his own choice. My my book is one time after another where people close to him would say, Mark, this isn't a good idea. And if he really wanted to do it, he would do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that she was not in that role anymore. And I think once the company basically announced it was refocusing, changing its name even to call itself Meta, refocusing on the metaverse, this is not Cheryl's expertise. And it's the beginning of a long long journey for meta and one were you know what which interest would she have there she'd already spent 14 years at a company that she thought she'd spend only five years at you know what's she going to sign on for another like 10 years to build the metaverse when she's already lost most of her authority that's ridiculous
2: yeah and is there are there any um kind of vignettes or, or stories that bring to life their relationship from the book or from your reporting that kind of encapsulate the good or the bad or the uh, ugly of this arrangement the one thing that the one that I was rereading the book last week is where um he hired after months of courting Sandberg he hires her and then f- finally decides to take like a month long vacation his like first proper vacation since starting the company and he's going off to India and in the, in the same ashram that Steve Jobs is and doing all it's kind of just backpacking like a normal 23 24 year old And letting her just kind of get there and figure out, okay, now how do we turn this into a proper business? I just felt like that was a really interesting kind of portrait of of that, at least the early stages of that relationship. But I don't know if there's any other stories that kind of spring to mind um, that kind of capture how that worked or didn't work.
3: Well, I think, you know, you would see them together. I think the idea is that they actually did have those meetings every week. Yeah. And she had a, a say in that. And it was interesting because for a while she was the person who would go to Davos and when uh, mm. go to Washington DC and talk to the politicians. But after a while, people soured on that. They said they understood that Mark was the person who was making the, the big decisions. Though Cheryl's imprint on that was in the people who worked there that, you know, the. There was this phrase, the FOSS, the friends of Sheryl Sandberg. And she would hire people who she knew personally and they had and still have a big sway in the company. The top Washington lobbyist is this guy, Joel Kaplan, who she dated for a while at Harvard. And I think that his relationship with Sheryl was instrumental in him having unbelievable influence on the company's policy. And you could argue that that, just in general is a bad idea. He had, you know, he the lobbyist, the guy who's in charge of politics, had a big say on what users saw on the platform. Mm. You know, the big content decisions sometimes went through him. You know, some of the bigger ones went up even to Mark, but uh, he had a say on it. It was Joel Kaplan in a meeting. I think maybe this is illustrative. Um, This big meeting they had about how to handle disinformation during the 2016 election did not involve Mark. It was called literally the Cheryl meeting. Right. And Joel Kaplan argued successfully that they should keep hands off disinformation, that they would be seen as tilting the playing field. When, in fact, ignoring disinformation was a gift to Trump because almost all of it was favoring him. It was much more profitable to spread disinformation that attacked Hillary Clinton than it was, you know, uh, the reverse. So that sort of is an example of the way things work, both on who she listened to and who right. didn't listen. It wasn't part of the conversation.
2: And Kaplan's, uh, rep- he's a rep- Republican, correct? Oh, yeah. He right. actually was involved
3: yeah, yeah. in, you know, finagling it. So uh, George W. Bush shut down the, the recount in Florida. He worked at that. He was one of those goons who, of the Brooks brothers riot. Him and him and his buddy Kavanaugh.
2: Right, 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 right. Literally,
3: wow. his friend. You know, I mean. Yeah. And then, and then another friend who was a little more on the liberal side. Um, this woman, uh, Marnie Levine, uh, Cheryl hired her to work in Washington. Then she came back and had various posts at Facebook for a while. She was chief operating officer of Instagram, and now she's basically. Filled in to be the chief ad person in terms of mm. sales at uh, Meta. So,
2: yeah, she is chief business officer, I think now. I think that's her title. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So, so, so she's super powerful. And um, so, you know, Cheryl's legacy remains.
2: Yeah, and what's really interesting is I was looking at the lobbying figures. Facebook last year spent 21 million dollars, which is the highest for any company, not like cuz there's a few like trade groups that spend more, but no company, no single company spends more on lobbying now than Facebook, which I guess doesn't take a genius to figure out
3: why. No, well, though if um they didn't spend it, uh think how much more aligned I mean I don't, I don't really don't know if uh Joe Biden could have hired any more any people who are like more opposed to Facebook than the people he has hired. He has a, literally a, a, an assistant, you know, the, the sort of, you could argue one of the top tech people oriented people in his administration, special assistant to a president uh, is this guy, Tim Wu has been arguing for years that right. Facebook should be broken up. Right. And then he hires, you know, the FTC uh, is headed by a woman who is, you know, an outright foe of big tech The antitrust head is, you know, another guy who holds that view. So, you know, basically uh, for all the lobbying, you know, Joe Biden has hired a a team which is determined to lessen Facebook's power. Yeah. And then on
2: the whole, um, this idea that the kind of the five year plan is if I don't even know if it was that kind of doesn't sound like it was that firm. But the, the sense that Sandberg would be there for five years, then go off and maybe do something else. And then she ended up being for staying there for fourteen years. Do you have a if you were a betting man? Do you have a sense of what she would do next? Because it does feel like this has gone again after five years into Facebook. The brand was completely different. It was not toxic. It was kind of new, fun, interesting, and really an amazing business story.
3: Well, she couldn't. No, the, the thing is, yeah. You know, and this is sort of like I call my grand theory of Cheryl. You know, the mm. the, the, the her plan was to take it to IPO and leave in that halo of a successful public offering. But the offering was a shambles. It was was a a disaster. disaster. Um, And Facebook had a real, there was a real question about whether it could successfully survive the switch to mobile, which it it had a lot of difficulties at and eventually it it succeeded. So she felt, wait a minute, I got to stay a couple more years to get past that. Then, tragically, her husband died. So, you know, she wasn't about to run for office to take on a challenge then. And then after the 2016 election, she couldn't leave then because it was in the midst of another big scandal, right? And uh, so it turned out that the circumstances, and, and I ran this by her and she sort of confirmed it. She you know, had some quibbles with it, my, my theory. But uh, yeah. basically, it that was right. And you think about it, here's a person you know you look at Cheryl Sandberg and she is the archetype of the meritocracy a person who went to high school and at every step she's going to take the advanced courses get the a plus she's going to get into harvard and what she's going to do yeah. then she's going to like get And right into the establishment. She became the chief of staff for the Secretary of the Treasury. And then where did she go? Where the biggest opportunities are, Silicon Valley. You know, Eric Schmidt said to her, don't pass up the chance to ride a rocket ship. And she did. She rode the rocket ship. And then this this post at Facebook, which put her position for an historic role in building a big company, the next step would have been something higher. And if you Mm. think about it, no one would have guessed that Cheryl would have been at Facebook for 14 years. A person like that doesn't stay at a job of 14 years. I had a conversation with her last week after she left, and I was joking. I said, Cheryl, I'm in a dead industry. And I never spent 14 years at a job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she laughed. But, um, you know, but, but she got it. And, you know, Cheryl's not going to sit there and, you know, quietly tend to her philanthropic work. She's going to cool off, rehabilitate her reputation, and someone's going to have her lead the company and maybe if that works out much later in life than she thought, maybe she will serve in some administration and running for office might be tougher.
2: You think she was she's going to hang out for a while and then go take a CEO role first rather than just going I ask because you know, I'm sure you've seen There seems to be a concerted kind of backroom effort to force Dan Feinstein out of office at age 88.
3: She cannot run. I mean, you know, everyone, you know, it it was a little complicated. I mean, she wasn't because of the reasons I talked about, you know, it it wasn't a good time to go for Barbara Mm -hmm. Boxer's open seat. And everyone felt that Kamala Harris was in line for that. Right. So Mm -hmm. that was tough. That was tough. But Feinstein resigns. There's no way that Sheryl Sandberg can credibly get that role, get that office. You know, I mean,
2: because of my words, the kind of Facebook stink that she, that is still kind of trails her. It feels like she has to kind of spend some time away, maybe go do something else and then to go into public office if if indeed she still is interested.
3: I think so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you do think she does ha- want to be a CEO somewhere?
3: Um, the, the, the right kind of company. I think, you know, look, we, we haven't talked about it. She's an incredibly smart person. Yeah. An incredibly dedicated person. And I think that she's much better than I am at assessing her opportunities. And she'll she'll do something to, you know, figure out how to get back. And she has genuine talents. And I think there's plenty of companies that would benefit from her being a CEO.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Twitter.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure she'd get along with Elon, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And then lastly, just on Facebook, as Zuckerberg said, it's the end of an era. He's kind of atomized her empire. Now everybody's reporting to him. He's making this huge bet on the metaverse, which it's not clear the world wants or needs. What is your take on kind of Facebook as it moves forward into this new era where it's kind of moving in this... New Direction and it seems to me, kind of desperately clinging to relevance?
3: Well, I think, I mean, look, it is relevant. I mean, you know, you look at, they are quietly pulling off what they successfully pulled off with stories. You know, they're manipulating the product to make it less useful for what you want it to do and sort of, fast laning you into reels which is a TikTok <laughs> clone yes right yes and you know the company is really willing to do this when i wrote about uh, uh javier uh, olivan the guy who's taking the chief operating officer post i i told the story about how we with messenger he you know uh made people angry by forcing them to download the separate app to send messages.
2: I remember that specifically. And I was like, why the hell do I have to download the separate app? I remember thinking it was...
3: You did it to serve Facebook, not to... They they did it for them, not for you. And they were able to drag you along and make you do what you didn't want to do because they had enough power. I think they are trying to do the same thing. They did it with stories. They're trying to do the same thing with reels basically because they see a threat in their horizon that people be drawn off by TikTok, which is wildly successful so they are doing that so i think that look it's going to be a long time before uh if ever the the bulk of their revenues come from the metaverse and there's no product which is as powerful as the ads that you see from newsfeed and you know their mobile ads that's going to come from the metaverse they're that's they, they make billions of dollars and it's going to be a long time for those billions to come from the metaverse, if ever. So yeah. that's still the bulk of their business. But you've got a CEO now who's you know, committed to branding the company towards the future. And in some ways it works. It's good enticement for engineers. It's more exciting to work on that than an ad product. But there's a lot of competition. And we'll see what happens. You know, that's why they call it a bet. They could lose but they could also win.
2: <laughs> exactly. And then lastly, on on on, um, Sheryl Sandberg, the feminist icon, I don't know if you have a sense of kind of where her standing is in that world, especially post-Francis Haugen last year publishing all those documents where they're showing kind of their own internal studies. And I know they weren't perfect, but showing some kind of data that especially uh, Instagram, especially for young women, these things are not good for a lot of people's self-esteem
3: yeah you saw Cheryl nowhere was defending you yeah, she was out of sight doing that
2: but I'm just wondering again thinking about like the Facebook brand and her association with it do you have a sense of you know lean in is almost a decade ago where that has got to or whether that too is tarnished and in need of rehabilitation because that's it's that's what it seems like to me but I don't know if you have a, a different view
3: Well, I mean, there's an active debate. I have no standing to weigh in on, you know, internal dispute among, you know, feminists, right? Um, There are supporters of lean-in style philosophy and there are detractors. I think that Cheryl will have to navigate her way through that. Um, You know, again, it's putting distance between her experience at Facebook while still managing to accept the credit for the uh, successful things she did. That That's a tricky needle to thread. And the way you get through it is you do something new, which builds a new legacy.
2: Right. It'll well, be fascinating to watch. Well, look, your insights are fantastic. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we'll see how it all turns out, whether the metaverse is like a losing bet, certainly a big one. And what happens, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, say, I don't know. 3 4 5 years down the road it'll be fascinating to watch.
3: Yeah, well, I'm going to watch. We'll see. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
3: Bye-bye.
0: Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: Voiceover on Settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
2: So that was my interview with Stephen. And now we're bringing on Chris Sheldrick, co founder and CEO of What Three Words. Here he is. Thanks for making the time and coming back to the show. It's been three years plus, at least, pre pandemic, certainly. So welcome back to Danny in the Valley. Thanks. Great to be back on Danny in the Valley post pandemic. (laughs) So, actually, a lot of listeners um, have reached out and be like, you know, it'd be really cool if you could kind of start checking back in with previous guests because oftentimes we have people come on, they have all these big ideas really kind of uh, swinging for the fences, and then you never hear about them again. And sometimes it works, and obviously, sometimes it doesn't. But could you start by just explaining to people who don't know what you guys are doing what what three words is and then where you guys have got to because you're one of these examples of actually following through on these grand plans it seems to be slowly starting to happen which is pretty cool thank you um
1: sure so for anyone who doesn't know it we divided the world into three media squares uh or 10 for squares and there's 57 trillion of those around the world And we name each one with three random words from the dictionary so something like table chair spoon or coffee banana pyramid so on and so on around the whole world and basically this just gives a very simple way to talk about any location without having to use gps coordinates or one of those more complicated systems so we just make location really really
2: simple like for example i live on the corner of laurel and sylvan and our front door is on sylvan but our address is on laurel which means our Amazon packages get dropped off to all of our neighbors because everybody's confused by it. So is the idea that like, if I can make my front door, you know, table, chair, spoon, whatever, so people know exactly where the thing is that you're trying to get to.
1: That's exactly it. It's... And and I have a very similar situation where I live in uh, rural UK in Hertfordshire, our village. We don't have street uh, numbers and people use postcodes and we don't get any mail to our house. Um, and it is about being able to say, actually, I do want to go in this three metre square. I want things to be delivered there. Or I want to navigate there. And it feels like in the year 2022, this should be possible and we should not be relying on addresses made centuries ago or postcodes made decades ago for different uh, reasons. And that people should be able to be precise about this entrance of this building in the world that we're now living in.
2: And so, because we covered a lot of the history last time, but if you could just give a brief pot of history of how you came up with this concept, because it is both simple, but also kind of out there, like just kind of picking three random words and being like, okay, divide the entire surface of the planet into these squares and come up with a random three word combination. And that's what that square is.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I guess I was predisposed to it because I lived in this place where addresses didn't work in, in our village. But then I worked for ten years in the music business and uh, I was the person who made the schedule and had to get everyone to arrive somewhere at four o'clock. And day after day we always showed up in a new place, whether it was the back of, you know, Wembley Stadium gate L forty two or something, or or halfway up an Italian mountainside. And I felt like I was always giving people an address with like an asterisk going, but actually don't follow that because, you know, you need to do something else. And I became known right. as the latitude longitude guy because I tried to enforce this on the <laughs> London music business. I was like, everyone must type in this eight-digit latitude, this eight-digit longitude into whatever you're using, whether it's a sat-nav, a car system, a ride-hailing app or whatever. And people were just incredibly resistant to it. And so when I chatted it through with my, my friend, who's a mathematician, I was saying that how do we just distill sixteen digits into something simple? And really it just boils down to the fact the world is a very convenient size to be able to break it into those fifty seven trillion squares and that there's just enough combinations of three words to get around them all. But that yeah, it just came from my pain in my life and in my music world and just thinking human friendly was kind of at the basis of what we wanted to come up with, and I think that's what we did.
2: Right and you you played a was it a string instrument it was kind of like an orchestra type of scene
1: i played the bassoon which yeah is is an orchestral instrument very niche uh there're not many bassoonists out there but yeah unfortunately that career uh a month after graduating i had i managed to punch a window whilst asleep and did some uh, permanent damage to my left wrist so uh bassoonist went out the window, no pun, uh, and then became music manager, uh, <laughs> who became perpetually lost, and then started What3Words. Right. And so when did you start the company? What year? Uh, 2013. Wow, nine years ago. It is. Uh, it's, it's a while ago. And you're approaching that point where it's kind of like a decade, and you go, what was I doing a decade ago? And, and it was sort of coming <laughs> up with this idea. And um, I guess it's one of those times when you realize how long, and if you think about where What3Words has now got to in UK and our adoption... It takes a while for these things. If you just start Mm. as an idea, you can't just come up with your idea and say, I've solved this problem. You've only solved it once people use it. And if you're going for a network effects product like What3Words, it takes that time. And you you go through your early adopter curve and then then they tell their friends and family and then they persuade them to use it. And then you suddenly get people who go, well, I feel like I must now use What3Words. And that's the kind of end of the adoption curve that, um, that we're now having in the UK. So it has been a really interesting ride to go through that process. And then you realize, as we're now trying to scale up internationally, how that then looks. And it is it is fortunately much, much easier doing that internationally, because of all of the things you get along the way after doing country number one. But yeah, it's been Mm -hmm. a it's been a great nine years.
2: And how much money have you raised total over that over that period, about 150 million so far, right. And let's talk about that adoption curve. Because I think um, most people, at least, I'll say in America, and I would I would venture most people in the UK have not heard of three words. So can you talk about the adoption curve and where that is? Because it does feel like this is the ultimate cold start problem business where you have like this whole system of addresses and, and posts and everybody kind of agrees that this is the system and you're creating an entirely new one.
1: Absolutely. So the UK and the US are in different places of adoption for us. At this stage, what three words has become something of a household name across the UK. Uh, I would actually be surprised to meet a a person who's lived in the UK for the last two or three years who hasn't heard of us. Mm. And that's been through a lot of work, let's say the emergency services. We did a big campaign with them because 85% of police, fire and ambulance services across the country um, will accept a three-wheel address if given one for people in an emergency, which is often needed. And then a lot of people have seen us through our partnerships with DHL, DPD, the big delivery companies that now have us in their apps. So a lot of exposure through that
2: and sorry- sorry, and are they using you as a kind of secondary like oh we've got this address but it's a big building and it has a bunch of doors let's use the what three words to get exact or are they using you as the kind of the default system? Like what how does that work or do you know?
1: So everybody is invited to add their what three words address. So it's always add. I would definitely say if you want to find anywhere, we don't want to replace anything just add the what right. three words address. But it's for all the people who have a problem and that's how they market it as well. And that's how we'd always like to be marketed is uh, for anything to do with delivery which is which add a three word address um, is, is the best way to think of it but these kind of partnerships now that we're doing are also household names and it turns it in from i tried that idea which was quirky and interesting to i just want to get this thing delivered where's where's the field for me to add my three word address and that is the transition that we're we're really happy has, has been made in the uk we need to now come to the us and deliver the same thing because the brand is is less well heard of but but we're growing
2: so can you talk about the news this
1: week? So the big news is that we are going to be live in Jaguar Land Rover cars from now, which we're really excited about. It's a massive brand. And we know a lot of Jaguar and Land Rover drivers have been requesting the Through Words feature for quite some time. And I think just given the types of places those vehicles go, which is off-road regularly, a lot of it's in rural areas, it's a perfect fit for us because the kind of places where addresses don't work. And it's been sent to the cars in an over-the-air update, so people may not even know that they've had it. So mm. uh, definitely worth the kind of thing yeah. to try it out and just see, great, this has now been beamed to my car. And even better than that, it then works offline. So if you're going to one of the aforesaid rural areas where you're always thinking, "Ah, oh, that's exactly the place that my phone doesn't give me any signal. Am I actually going to be able to use this What's through Words uh, feature in reality? The answer is yes, because we're this tiny tiny five megabyte file that then lives in the car and wherever you are even without signal you'll be able to input your three-word address and navigate there so it's a massive partnership for us huge brand and brilliant that we had others like mercedes in the past and lotus lamborghini so so many others have come before but but jaguar land rover another big british brand we're really excited about
2: a five megabyte file that feels tiny given that you're again talking about you know 57 trillion squares (laughs) it is tiny and in fairness
1: to my co-founder i wasn't the mathematician of the two of us he was and is but it is just remarkable how yeah if you if you design it as an algorithm instead of a database then it is a five megabyte file and that's what it is there's a very small overhead for additional languages but it's an incredibly efficient piece of code and we're wrapping numbers which are the coordinates into words but it means that for any company to integrate it's pretty straightforward
2: Right. And so when you say the over-the-air update, this is, I'm guessing, the kind of in-car navigation system, the little screen that you're like, you know, I want to go to X or Y or whatever. That's
1: exactly it. It's that screen. And at some point, everyone who gets that update, it'll, it'll say that What3Words has been beamed to the car and from that moment on you can then put your three words and off you go.
2: And so how many OEMs
1: now have you done these deals with? So we've done deals with 17 OEMs as of today. Uh, And so that feels like a good number. There's only so many car companies in the world and that's a lot of navigation systems. So we've said to everyone since day one, we want to be in all of them and 17 down and, and a few to go. But when you're creating a standard for which there isn't really any competition, it is a very achievable goal to say that you want to be in everything. And so that's that's what we're continuing to to do and, and work hard on.
2: In terms of breaking into the US, I mean, as you will know better than probably pretty much everybody, there's a whole bunch of new companies coming out. There's obviously the OEMs, which we all know about, Ford, GM, et cetera. But there's also a bunch of new electric car companies that are kind of, you know, trying to be as innovative as possible and kind of making their brand around that. Companies like Rivian in particular you know, biggest IP tech IPO last year, its shares have obviously collapsed, but it's still got worth thirty or forty billion dollars and their whole brand is around kind of adventure going outdoors and remote places, etc. Have you do you have any conversations with some of these big names that might kind of give you a pop out here? either with these new brands or the big American car makers?
1: So there's one really exciting one uh, called Vinfast, uh, which is coming to the U.S. They, They made a huge announcement last month. In fact, President Biden even tweeted about them. They're building this enormous manufacturing plant. They're based out of Vietnam. They're funded by uh, the biz conglomerate there called Vin Group, And they are absolutely on a mission to bring electric vehicles to the US. Vinfast, I've never heard of them. Yeah, well, I, it's one of those things that I think very, very soon a lot of people will have heard of them because uh, they're, they're about to launch. And we signed a deal at the beginning of this year, and we will be part of their cars as they launch over the next few months in the US. And I think we will hopefully see some of the other new brands follow suit because Vinfast are being seen as innovators in the field. And it's good for us to have a blend in those 17 car companies. You've got some of the legacy ones, some of the the newest, coolest ones. And it's good for us to set precedent. I think we don't just want to be a a cool new feature with, with the cool new car companies. We want to be something that absolutely everyone and you just expect what three words will be in your vehicle when you buy a new one. That's where we want to get to.
2: Right. And then along this kind of journey of getting people into it, like what is your interaction or how do you sit next to something like, I don't know, google maps which feels like the most probably the most used google maps or ways one of these do you have any relationship with them are they like hey who are you we don't like you or is it you know what is the market dynamic there
1: so i think important to remember that what three words we don't make maps and we don't make navigation software and so we managed to stay neatly kind of out of the battle, and there is a bit of a battle going on between the mapping providers for all of the business integrations into all of these mobility products. We are a partner to all of those kind of companies rather than a competitor, because they're all taking addresses and, and providing that as a service. And we're saying, well, add add What3Words. And so those mapping companies then become our partners, and they um, they are the ones who end up building What3Words in for the end business customers sort of when i said we don't really have any competition that's a nice place for us to be and when it means that we do get integrations with with all of these guys it means that the the others then take notice so for example in in south korea google and apple maps are are not so widely used Um, there's one called cacao map uh, which is most widely used in the country they've integrated what three words Um, and it's such a great precedent and now post covid we're able to go back to south korea and then to talk to all of the other players. So we very much view anybody in the maps business as our partner because no one's really making a competing product to us.
2: I know this isn't exactly you guys aren't making maps, but can you talk a little bit about that battle for dominance between the mapping companies because that just sounds interesting because it does feel like all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it's been happening for quite a long time but but that you know every car has a nice big screen with a map on it, there's all these delivery apps, it does feel like maps is a big business. But I don't know where the action is. But it sounds like there must be some interesting stuff happening.
1: There is. And I think cars is a really big part of it. But I think there was this slightly odd few years in the market just now where the cars weren't connected. And so even though people would buy a new car, and there'd be this great sort of spangled map, it would be out of date in a month. And then people would sort of resort to sticking their phone on the dashboard, because they wanted to have live traffic and this kind of thing. Now the cars have now caught up. And they are now becoming connected I mean great example being this jaguar Land Rover up being being pushed remotely, but a few years ago that was almost unheard of in the car business so now people are using, as you say, it's a nice big screen in the middle of their car. And they're actually, this is better than sticking my phone, uh, sort of sticky taping it onto the the (laughs) windscreen because I've still got the traffic, I've still got the live updates. And now there's this battle. And Google, who had previously not been in that part of the market, have now entered the market. There was an announcement very recently about Apple and about their plans for infotainment and how it links to, to their devices. So I think cars and anything to do with mobility, by which I mean autonomous cars, and anything to do with shared cars, or, or ride hailing, all of this area is heating up. But I would yet yeah, restress that for us, as long as what three words is, is in all of those integrations, we're happy, basically.
2: Right. And so, I mean, you guys are obviously having a lot of success. But what does success look like for you? Is it that in five or 10 years, my address is not 4042 Laurel Avenue, it's banana cup table?
1: Well, I think. Remember, Danny, your address is already banana cup table. So, uh, so that is partly success.
2: Um, but I guess uh,
1: so. A bigger part of success is is you then flipping the two uh, when when you're talking yes. Uh, yes, to exactly. someone else about it. Um, but also, I think we we've kind of got to that point now in the UK where if you add a three word address let's say you booked an airbnb or something and someone gave you the notes and how to get there you could just put it in without having to give an explanation like oh here's a new cool feature or this is a new system it's just and the what three words address is and that if we can replicate that in other countries in the world that is success and it's very motivating for our team because the the stories are, I think Jeff Bezos said it recently or something, it's like the ultimate success is when your product becomes referred to as boring Yeah. because it's no longer new and interesting and it's just reliable and that reliability is boring. That's a goal. And I remember saying this to our team recently and that's kind of how I think about it now. In the UK, it's standard. And so mm. if we can take that and replicate it and we kind of know what our playbook is then for me, just to be able to go anywhere in the world, those three slashes and all three words and people know what to do, that's pretty awesome.
2: And so are you integrated in, and again, I'm just thinking my personal experience in in America, you're relying mostly on Google Maps, for example. Yeah, are you integrated there? Or is there a plan? Or is that like a goal? Or like, how would that work? Or do I need a, a what three words app that is separate? And how does that work, etc.?
1: So today, people should get the What3Words app, which again will take you through the onboarding and you understand your 3Word address, so that's important. But then it's really simple in that app, you just would enter a 3Word address, you hit Navigate, and then you can choose Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, whatever you use I to see, navigate there, and it will export you to that app. Absolutely, our ambition is to be natively supported, like we are yeah. in all of those car navigation systems, like we are in KakaoMap. And we are getting there uh, with the big players, for sure, because we love to be native. And in fact, our ultimate ambition is even to make our own app redundant. So that if you can, if you can yes. find your three words in the app you normally use, and then enter them into another app you normally use, you don't even need to come to our app. So that's the ultimate goal is to be a system and
2: not an app. How do you guys make money? Is it like a licensing fee? Or what's, what's the model?
1: So it's the world of geocoding, uh, which basically is a glorified way of saying address search. So every time that you get a right-handing app and you type in something, I don't know, number one Mission Street, somebody's got to pay to turn one Mission Street into the coordinates. And it's this kind of business model people people don't think about because we type in addresses into everything, but we charge in exactly the same way. So we're only charging businesses who are already used to paying for address search. I see. and. They just pay us instead of the provider first street addresses. So it doesn't really cost anyone any more or any less. The consumer is happy because they don't pay anything. And so the business model has always been the very uncontroversial bit of how we price it. And then the more adoption there is, of course, the more value that creates. So so really, we, we focus entirely on the adoption.
2: So is there like a – like there is big oil. Is there a big address? Like who, who are the companies that – that get paid for that or hand or turn that request for an address into coordinates so the
1: google maps api uh, does exactly that uh there's another really big player called here maps which is is more of a b2b brand less lesser known by consumers but they do a vast Quantity of them, I think, on their website they do something like 19 billion address searches a month, if I remember right. Wow! So it, right. it's one of those things everyone goes, "Wow, there's that many address searches in the world." But you just think how many times you're typing that address in, yeah, yeah, online. Totally. And
2: um, there are there are some others, country by country, but those those are kind of the big players. Got you. And you talked about a little bit about you know taking this around the world. If I'm in Kenya or if I'm in South Africa or Vietnam. Do you have 57 trillion Vietnamese words? Do you have 57 trillion Swahili words? Like, how's that work?
1: The short answer is yes. Uh, Although in some of those languages, we only cover the land on Earth and not the oceans, but we feel that that's okay, because we haven't yet had demand for the Vietnamese ver- version in, in the Pacific Ocean. But yeah, so even even where you're sitting now, assuming you're sitting in the States, yeah. uh, you will have three Vietnamese words for where you are. You'll have three Swahili words for where you are. We have 51 languages that we've now launched in. Wow. And so it's a big part of our mission to be something that people should be able to use in their native language. Whenever I demo what three words, and I did it a few minutes ago, I always flip it to people's native language and, and it makes them lean in. Because people love language and their own language. and, And we want people to be able to travel the world in their own language. So that's a big part of it for us, yes.
2: Right. And so if I'm, so you're in Portugal right now. So say I'm a Portuguese tourist in San Francisco. And I have my, what, three words app open. And I put in whatever. Take your random three Portuguese words for the address that I want. It will then navigate me to, do you want to find this via Google or Apple? And then it'll create a map to exactly that using my language. Exactly. Um, and gotcha. and
1: I've I just been in Japan, for example. I don't speak Japanese, the Japanese system is notoriously difficult. And with another English speaker, we very happily exchanged our English three words and, and navigated to where we needed to get to. Uh, but similarly, Japanese speakers in San Francisco can, can do
2: it in Japanese. I see. What was the hardest part of this? I mean, I know it's not over and it's kind of constantly new challenges, but if you're looking back, going back again to this, it's funny, you're a startup, but like, nearly a decade is a long time. <laughs> and I, ma- I I wonder, you know, if you looked back then, you'd be like, yeah, it's going to take me a decade almost to get to this point where you are now. its it, it always feels like it takes longer. It's more challenging. There's tons of unexpected stuff. I'm just wondering if you like thinking back along this whole arc what stands out.
1: Yeah, I think it would have to be, you know, the earlier it is, the harder it is. And it, that's the same for a lot of startups, for sure, but also network effect startups in particular. Mm, and yeah. people always used to say to us, "Kind of neat idea," in a kind of
2: <laughs> well, "we don't think this will ever go anywhere." Way kind of dismissive, like "Oh, cool, good, good idea." Now, see you later. Yeah. exactly and they would say
1: you know who's integrated it and of course back then we'd say well no one but you know maybe you could be the first company and and no one wants to be the first company and so and now you walk through the door and it's mercedes and it's dhl and it's and it's all of these huge brands and sometimes people sort of mouths open because the concept of three random words still seems a little bit bizarre to them and they're like honestly i just type in table banana um, pyramid and we say yes it's just table banana pyramid and these highly credible brands have done it. So but it was hard. Uh, it was hard when we were smaller, it was hard when we had to sell that vision of a global, not national global standard. Yeah. And we weren't along that road, but you persevere and you find the people who want to be first and, and you get up. Who was first? Uh the Mongolian Postal Service was I think our first <laughs> business customer. I'll be honest that it, it it wasn't the first one on the business plan. Uh when we sort of mapped out where we thought
2: we'd get success initially. You gotta put your foot in the door wherever you can, even if it's in Mongolia. Yeah,
1: exactly. And um but it's a phenomenal business yeah, in Mongolian, our Mongolian version was certainly expedited uh when that phone call came in, uh because that language wasn't roadmapped yet, um because they have relatively few speakers, but it was a phenomenal yeah. landmark moment. Uh in fact there's great British TV show called QI who actually posted a a letter to Mongolia just with the name and the three words to see if it got there. And it did. Oh right. And um to sort of validate the use. But yeah, it was uh that was a great one.
2: Cool. Well um I think those are all my questions. It's uh, like I said, I love kind of checking in with people to see if like um to see how things have gone, you know, kind of comparing the grand vision to, you know, the hard work of actually making it happen. But um, it sounds like things are going swimmingly. Now you need, need to kind of break through in, uh, in America.
1: Exactly. It's definitely good that we certainly seem to be coming out of the other side of, of COVID. You know, we we proudly came to see, yes, this year, and, and basically everything was canceled due to Omicron. But now we're, we're in a world where we can go and see all of our customers wherever they are in the world, and we are focusing uh, on the U.S. in a big way. With a bunch of the launches we've got coming up so we're, we're very excited about that hopefully it can be another uk success market for us and we're doing plenty on the other side of the world too so um yeah that's where we're at now and it's pretty exciting times
2: cool well we'll have you back on probably not three years we'll do it before that um but um yeah thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it total pleasure danny thanks for having me and that is all the time we have. I want to thank Stephen. I want to thank Chris for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. Thank you, as ever, for listening. I will not be writing about... I mean, I wrote a big thing on Sheryl Sandberg last week, so I think that's kind of done and dusted, but... Um, you know, I think Stephen really just brings a, a great perspective, so I really wanted to bring him on. We'll be covering a bunch of stuff in the paper. Just check it out, thetimes.co.uk, or just pick up the Sunday Times, you know, the actual paper, paper, old school. You can find me on Twitter, at Danny Forts, and you can email me, Danny.Forts@Sunday-Times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver
2: on, settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with
1: Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.